You're listening to The Leonard Lopez Show on AM820 and 93.9 WNYC. Last summer, a computer security analyst in Belarus was trying to figure out why the computer of a client in Iran was continuously rebooting. It turned out that he was dealing with a worm called Stuxnet that would make international headlines when it was reported to have targeted computers in Iran's nuclear facility at Natanz. Joining me to explain how Stuxnet works, how it was detected, and who's probably behind it is Vanity Fair contributor Michael Joseph Gross. His article, A Declaration of Cyber War, appears in the April issue of his magazine, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to today's underreported segment. Hello. Hi, Leonard. Thanks for having me. Who was the first person to detect Stuxnet? It was a man named uh, Sergei Ulyssen, who is the head of the anti-virus, uh, pardon me, the antivirus kernel research department at a very small security company in Minsk, Belarus. Uh, one day he was sitting at his desk, and uh, happens a hundred times a day. He got a report that somebody's computer was acting funny, but when he looked into it, he found that this virus was exploiting a flaw in Windows that nobody had ever seen before. How was it introduced into the system that it scrambled? Pardon me? How was it introduced into the systems that it scrambled? Can you just send uh, a worm into anybody's computer system? Well, Stuxnet is a worm that had several uh, means of propagation. It, uh, it, it was equipped to handle almost any version of Windows, so it could jump into machines that were running the latest software or machines that were running older software. It could, um, it could come in via a USB key. It could even spread on the Internet. Once it got onto any uh, computer that had the software connected to the machinery it was looking for, it would spread to every machine on that network and just sit there and very patiently check in every so often, looking to see if the computers had connected to this precise configuration of machinery it was looking for. So was the man whose computer kept on rebooting working in Iran's nuclear facility? Uh, we don't know that. We don't know exactly where that, that client was. Why is it even called Stuxnet? Well, Stuxnet is uh, named, it was named by a Microsoft researcher who found the letters in two different lines of the code and then just switched them around into an anagram of something that sounded like a word. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's impossible to know exactly what that person was thinking when he chose the name, but it's hard not to imagine that he, uh, he didn't have William Gibson or Frank Herbert in the back of his mind. It just sounds so much like uh, a dystopian science fiction monster, Stuxnet. And what made the Stuxnet worm so technologically sophisticated? Was it its size? Um, well, the size was, was gigantic. It's, uh, it's probably um, about 20 times the size of the biggest uh, virus that most researchers had seen previously. Um, but it, it wasn't so much the sheer size as the intri intricacy of the structure of this thing. It was, um, 
you know, it was a Gothic cathedral compared to the, the little brown church in the Vale that most viruses are. Um, this one was extraordinary and sort of the, the, the mad, almost a magical thing to a lot of the researchers who looked at it because it not only came in through all these different doorways, but also, as I said, was so patient. It sat there, and it, it waited, and it checked, looking for the exact, um, the exact quarry, the exact game that it was hunting for. And only then would it go in for the kill. Only then would it fully activate. This is very unusual for computer malware. There's a huge problem of what's called collateral damage. So unintended mechanical consequences, screen freezes, blue screens, crashes. Um, what's so unusual about Stuxnet is that it almost exclusively uh, just went after the one thing that it was looking for, which turned out to be centrifuges. Is, is that why it's called a worm rather than just a computer virus? Well, a worm is a self-replicating computer virus. Well, Stuxnet targeted its attack on pre uh, programmable logic controllers. Uh, what do they do? Programmable logic controllers, which are also referred to as PLCs or controllers, are little gray boxes about the size of a pack of crayons. They're little computers without any kind of human interface, you know, without any kind of screen or keyboard attachable. These Things live in the guts of the industrial machinery that make our lives possible. So without controllers, we wouldn't have the valves opening and closing in our sewer system. We wouldn't have uh, the, the, uh, um, they make, they were originally developed actually for the automotive industry in Detroit. So they make it possible for the robots in factories to do their thing. They control the way uh, traffic lights work. They really control everything um, that, that holds up modern life. Um, Stuxnet looks for programmable logic controllers, but then it checks to see if the controllers made by the German company Siemens are connected to a certain configuration of machinery. Specifically, they're looking for frequency converter drives, which are other little machines that control, can control the spinning of centrifuges. So it's a very limited, a very small target. Uh, and w is that important uh, uh, because uh, they didn't want it to spread to all sorts of other things? Is, is, uh, it would suggest that a certain strategic thinking was being deployed by the worm. That's exactly right. Although, let's make a distinction between not wanting it to spread and not wanting it to sabotage. The ultimate goal of Stuxnet is to sabotage a certain kind of machinery. And what was so extraordinary about it was that it was able to sabotage that machinery and that machinery alone. Um, however, it was also designed to spread wildly. Um, wildly may be a bit of an overstatement, but extremely widely. Uh, Stuxnet, as I mentioned, was designed in a way that would creep in the windows of almost any version of Windows. So it's living on many, many 
tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands at this point. I, I don't know the most recent numbers, um, but hundreds of thousands of machines around the world that happen to be running the engineering software that controls PLCs, which is widely used in, in many uh, uh, industrial and, and design facilities. My guest is Michael Joseph Gross, whose article in Vanity Fair is called A Declaration of Cyber Wars. It appears in the April issue. And we're talking about the Stuxnet worm on today's underreported segment. Two variants of the original code were also eventually detected. Wouldn't that make it easier to detect the worm? Well, what Stuxnet had as its camouflage was what's called a digital signature. A digital signature is something that pieces of software carry the way that people carry passports. So when a piece of software crosses the border and goes into a new machine, it flashes its digital signature so that your machine knows that it comes in peace and it's, it's the real thing. It's who it says it is. Um, Stuxnet was equipped not with forged digital signatures, but with actual real ones that had been stolen by the, by the people who issue these signatures. Uh, this is something that no malware analyst had ever seen or had, had made public anyway. It's, uh, it's kind of the equivalent of watching your kids and waiting for them to start using a, a, a fake ID to get into bars and then finding out that they just skipped that step altogether and decided to get a real cop's badge instead. Well, as news of the virus broke, it changed its signature. That's right. Um, Which actually, must have made it even harder to detect. That's right. Well, you know, for about a week. But because everybody was on to it, um, the world was looking, or the tech world was looking very closely at Stuxnet. It was, a, it was, it was a very exciting event for these analysts. Um, so within about a week, they found the second signature as well. And at that point, the jig was up. So uh, Stuxnet... It's continuing to spread in, in certain places um, where machines are not protected or not being uh, carefully monitored. But uh, but eventually, it's also programmed to destroy itself. I believe it's June of 2012. It will just simply uh, erase and and go away from the world. And uh, we'll get to that in a little while. Why that might even be. Uh, but I'm curious about all these people who are working to decrypt it. How many people were working on the project, and, uh, and who were they? Mm, well, there are many whose names we will probably never know. This is, uh, as soon as it was found, um, the code of Stuxnet was posted on a couple of private mailing lists for, for experts in, in malware, malicious software. And those people started putting their heads together and talking on, on their message boards. One in Munster, Germany, named Frank Baldwin, very quickly decrypted most of the payload and found he was the guy who figured out that it was looking for PLCs. Um, he posted that finding to a message board, which then people, including uh, computer experts working for governments around the world, read. And there was a moment of real panic in a lot of the Western powers, including the United States, where the, they wondered if this was an attack on controllers in general. They wondered if this was something that was going to bring industrial society to a halt. But 
before long, they figured out that it was only looking for Siemens controllers. Eventually, a man in Germany named Ralph Langner in Hamburg figured out that Stuxnet was carrying two components that he called warheads that were looking for not just PLCs, but PLCs attached to a certain configuration of machinery. Um, it took a little bit longer before folks figured out that those configurations of machinery, machinery actually involved uranium centrifuges. But Langner had seen some clues in the code. He found the words mertus and guava, which are Latin words for their botanical classifications. He did some Googling, um, and uh, he decided that those were clues that maybe Israel was behind this, that they were almost like signatures, the way Al Hirschfeld, the caricaturist, would put his daughter's name, Nina, in the hair of Carol Channing. Well, why, why would Israel uh, put clues that would uh, point to itself into something Very like this? good question. Actually, a lot of other... Uh, Cyber war experts believe that those clues are what's referred to as a false flag in intelligence um, operations. It's quite common for one country to plant clues that would deflect suspicion to another country. So, uh, but why would Israel have put those words into it, or somebody else put those words into uh, deflect suspicion to Israel? Uh, well, what's the I significance mean, of those words? Uh, oh, well, those words are allusions to the book of Esther, which is a story about a Persian, uh, pardon me, about uh, 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 Jews foiling a Persian plot against them. So this could be read as a, quite an ingenious analogy, uh, pardon me, allusion to uh, a, a similar biblical story about, about the ongoing tension between, between Israel and what's now Iran. Because Iran used to be Persia. Exactly. We'll uh, go get into this in a little more detail after we take a break. Uh, my guest on today's underreported segment, uh, talking about the Stuxnet worm, is Vanity Fair contributing writer Michael Joseph Gross. His article, A Declaration of Cyber War, appears in the April issue of that magazine. Stay with us, Michael. We will be back in just a little while. We're back with our underreported look at the Stuxnet worm with Vanity Fair contributor Michael Joseph Gross, whose article, A Declaration of, uh, of Cyber War, appears in the April issue of Vanity Fair. Michael, what's uh, a zero day? A zero day is a flaw in software that has not been discovered yet, that is exploited by a piece of malicious software to get into your computer. The term zero day refers to the timing of the attack. The attack happens on the zeroth day of the developer's awareness of the flaw, so before the developer has noticed the flaw. When did analysts realize that Stuxnet used not one but four of those zero days? That happened gradually over the course of a few months. The the worm was first found last uh, last June, and 
the first thing they noticed was that it had one zero day. Um, before long, they found two, and that was that was pretty amazing. But over the next couple of months, as the top security firms started putting their heads together on this, Kaspersky and Symantec, Asset, McAfee, uh, they found four. And that really is the biggest technical blockbuster that has ever been made public in malware history. It's sort of the equivalent of an unknown director blowing as much on one scene in his little movie as James Cameron spent on all of Avatar. I mean, this is the most souped-up thing that the world of malware has ever seen. And it's, it led Eugene Kaspersky, uh, the CEO of Kaspersky Labs, to uh, decide that, I suspect anyway, that a government was behind Stuxnet because um, it was, it, there were all sorts of things built into it that controlled its spread, which is something a rogue programmer might not bother to do? Uh, right. Well, and because those... Um, it, it, that, that's exactly right. Um, th- there are a lot of things about about Stuxnet that uh, that are that are a lot of people are referring to as fail safes. Um, Stuxnet stops spreading after it has infected a or, or I guess each um, each each instance of Stuxnet kind of uh, stops spreading once it's reached a certain number of machines. Um, uh, for instance, a USB key that goes into a computer can only take Stuxnet three times. Then it then it stops. If you look at the mathematics of, of the way diseases spread, that's enough to create a moderate epidemic, but not to you know devastate the world with smallpox. As people worked to decrypt the code in Stuxnet, did they also learn about the people who wrote it? Did they figure out how long it took to write this and how many programmers might have been involved in writing the code? Well, programmers' styles, as it turns out, are just as distinctive as prose styles by novelists. So you can look at the code here and see the traces of one semantic analyst estimated that there were at least 30 people involved in writing this virus. Now, you've also got... uh, probably an installation that was set up so that it could be tested. It could be connected to PLCs that were connected to the frequency converter drives that may even have been connected to the centrifuges it was looking for. You've got to have a system for quality control to oversee all that. There were other people who were in charge of setting up the servers in Denmark and Malaysia that Stuxnet would phone home to as it spread to get new instructions, to get updates over the course of time. Um, it, 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 it was a massive operation, um, and it probably took uh, most of the estimates that I heard uh, were in the range of six months or so. I, uh, I talked to another security analyst, very, very senior guy uh, uh, who's now working in non-security stuff for Google, and um, his, his analysis indicated that it actually took more like a year. But we're talking about probably millions of dollars. And just the cost of zero days alone, about 100000 each on the black market is what those sell for. Ralph Langner, the man you mentioned earlier, who decided that it was uh, deployed by Israel against Iran's nuclear program, also thought it was aimed at 
uh, a plant in Boucher, not the one in Attends, which it actually was aimed at. So um, were there things that were even tricking the, the smartest security analysts? Absolutely, and there are still things that are tricking the smartest security analysts. One of the, I mean, if you ask five of the top guys in the world to answer a very simple question about this worm, you're not just going to get five different answers. Ask them on five different days, and you're going to get 25 different answers. Um, it's just this is this is a very murky world where it's very difficult to speak precisely, and um, and. People have, have, have a lot of different ideas about which parts of the worm actually work, which don't. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it's more difficult to speak precisely about this than I think any subject I've ever reported on. Now, uh, another security analyst, Frank Rieger, thinks that this was uh, a joint operation of the United States and Israel. But don't some people think that it would be strange for the United States and Israel to collaborate on something like this because the CIA and the Mossad don't always see eye to eye? (laughs) That's right. Well, and also because we're talking about a, a radically new innovation in the nature of warfare here. We're talking about um, we're talking about a step that is. We can talk about this more later, but but really comparable to the threshold that we crossed when we introduced the first nuclear weapons into society. This this you know, cyber warfare, let's call it, is taking place in a context of of, of no rules of no. You know, international agreement on on how this stuff should happen. So whoever decided to do this probably wanted to maintain a lot of control over it. Now, of course, there are plenty of intelligence officers uh, who have lots of experience in 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 joint operations who will give you another idea about how this may have worked. Uh, one person pointed out that because you're not really putting somebody in harm's way. You're just giving them a, a, a digital item to take in and maybe plug into a computer. Um, you'd be more likely to, to create a, a joint operation, more likely to, uh, to, to put your heads together as, as two or even three or four countries. You mentioned earlier that the worm has a self-destruct date of June 24, 2012. Is that an unusual feature of a worm like this? Um, yeah. Uh, well, Richard Clark, the former chief of counterterrorism for both President Clinton and George W. Bush, thinks that means that it comes from a Western government. Its its uh, target uh, uh, is is not widespread, which makes it uh, kind of a responsible act. In 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 certain ways, yes. It 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 absolutely is. Um, it's trying to be as responsible as as a destructive thing can be. <laughs> goes, yes. Do people in the industry all agree on this now uh, that American intelligence was involved? Um, I mean, very few people will come right out and and say that at least publicly on the record. But um, there's a there's a lot of of evidence just lying in plain sight that would suggest that if you go back and create two timelines, one of how Stuxnet developed over the course of its life and another of what U.S. 
Iran in relations looked like um, as we've hit each of the rocks in the river in these last couple of years. You'll see that every time tensions build, every time uh, pressure mounts for us to to put the kibosh on their program, Stuxnet ups its game. Uh, that's a that's a, another caution um, built into the Stuxnet story that's much more characteristic of the U.S. than of Israel, much more characteristic of the U.S. than of, uh, you know, any of the other uh, possible suspects here. And then the, just the sheer cost would suggest that it's at least some place where there's a fair amount of money, although we don't want to get into what Congress might think about that expense. Uh, the the virus targeted only Siemens programmable logic controllers. Was the company aware that their controllers might be vulnerable to this sort of attack? Well, the company had collaborated with the Idaho National Laboratories, which is a program of the Department of Energy, on a study of controllers so that critical infrastructure in the U.S. could protect itself better. Um, some of the very same vulnerabilities that were found by that study were vulnerabilities that ended up being exploited by Stuxnet. So, yes, they've been aware of of some of these problems, but primarily the, there's a, a problem with the, what are called hard-coded passwords on the PLCs. It's when you put the PLCs into an industrial facility, uh, truth is you'd be wisest to change those passwords, but it's difficult to do, so a lot of uh, factories, a lot of power plants don't change them. Um, because those passwords are known, they're you know they're kind of a, a, a sitting duck for any bad guy who wants to get in there. So Siemens's answer to the question of whether they'll, they're aware of the vulnerability is to just boil it down to one line: Yes, we know that it's there, but but it's not our responsibility because you know we've we've told all the clients that they should be changing their password, and if they don't, that's their problem. Earlier this year, there was a story in the New York Times that Israel had tested Stuxnet on one of its own facilities, a uranium centrifuge testbed in Israel. Why didn't that story have experts convinced that Israel was the only country behind Stuxnet? Well, if you if you look very carefully at that story, um, the evidence for its assertion is actually quite shaky. Um, the and if you look at the timing of the story, it's uh, it's something that you know it's, it's calling itself investigative journalism, but there there's certain signs that it it may have been something more like a controlled leak. This is a story that came out just four days before the next round of nuclear negotiations in Turkey, and uh, you know it kind of served all Western interests best to deflect suspicion from the U.S. and onto Israel at that point. Um, took some pressure off both Israel and the U.S. and let Israel feel that the U.S. was was uh, was had their back. Um, uh, well, has the Mossad ever commented on this, or has any U.S. agency commented on an involvement with Stuxnet? The Mossad um, has not. Uh, 
two, thing, two things happened on the Israeli side. One is that Meyer Dagan, the longtime head of the Mossad, uh, retired earlier this year, and right around the time of his retirement, he noted that Iran's nuclear program had been set back by a couple years due to some covert, uh, I don't believe he called them covert actions, but uh, he had a, a, a smooth synonym for that um, uh, some sort of actions against them. Then, just about two weeks ago, another senior Israeli defense um, uh, figure in the Israeli defense world uh, retired. And at his retirement party, there was a video of highlights of his of his career, which included a section on covert operations. There was a small clip of a news report that mentioned Stuxnet. So. The implication, it, it was a sort of one eyebrow raised, you know, nod and a wink, um, which, is, which is what you get a lot from, from Israeli sources on this. They'd like for people, certainly, to think that they were, uh, had some hand in it. As far as the American side of this goes, there was, there was a strange silence for a very long time. And in all of the media coverage of this, you find no traces of any reporters asking directly any government sources, yes or no, were you responsible for this? I finally did that with the CIA, the NSA, um, Cyber Command, and the Idaho National Laboratories. And I got elliptical, odd answers from intelligence. CIA just wouldn't comment. NSA and, uh, and Cyber Command said, essentially, we have nothing to add. But INL came right back. Actually, INL got in touch with me. I didn't even contact them. I don't know how they found out about the story. But one day, a statement from them showed up in my email box, and it said definitively, categorically, we were not involved with this. So that's the first official statement we've got from a government a U.S. government body um, saying yes or no, and they're saying no. Well, hasn't uh, one of the biggest threats of cyber warfare been that you don't always know who is making the attack? Uh, so you right. do, it's yeah, not I, like somebody dropping a bomb on you. You can see where the missiles came from. Exactly. Um, no, this really changes everything about the the way that war works. There's no... There's no catharsis like you get in a dogfight. There's no, there's no, there's no certainty about whom to blame. Uh, it's not just most of the time. It's really practically all the time that attribution is ultimately impossible with absolute certainty. You don't look up in the sky and see zeros on the bottom of the planes. Um, stuff just stops working, and um, and that you know that resembles more what we've come to call terror in this society than what we grew up thinking of as war. Do we know yet the full extent of the damage uh, or the, the targets of Sexnet? No, we don't, because um, of so many reasons. Uh, one is just the, the technical difficulties of decoding this. We still are not absolutely sure what the second warhead was after, and we don't even know whether it was active. Some people and top people are absolutely sure that it would do damage exactly the same way that the first one has more or less been proven to have done damage. And other people equally 
eminent in this field will fight to the death to say no um, it uh, this doesn't work at all so we're sort of pushed back the authority of the folks in Iran who are reporting what happened over there but you know are you going to take Ahmadinejad's word for this he's for a long time said that he that Stuxnet didn't didn't do anything to the nuclear program. Now he's saying that that it did. Well, once um, once Iran gets its nuclear program back on track, will Stuxnet no longer be an effective weapon, or will can we expect to see newer versions in the future? Stuxnet will no longer be an effective weapon because Stuxnet was designed to go after a particular configuration of machinery, which obviously they're now going to change, but. What Stuxnet did was it showed the world a new way for uh, cyber attack to work. And in that way, it will become the blueprint, almost certainly, for future attacks. However, I want to just go back to one other part of your question. Uh, There's a huge huge, um, debate as well about exactly how much damage Stuxnet did. The the top experts who've been studying this actually suggest that though we may have knocked out about a thousand centrifuges, that did not slow the progress of uranium enrichment uh, by much. And if we if we were successful, in fact, um, Iran has pretty much recovered by now, and 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 they're moving forward. So, Even though it costs us not a, millions and millions of dollars to do this, or somebody right. millions of dollars to do it. Thank you so much for being with us, Michael Joseph Gross, whose article, A Declaration of Cyber War, appears in the April issue of Vanity Fair. He has been with us for our underreported segment today, taking a look at the Stuxnet worm. Thank you. 